FBI Confidential, taking you inside the FBI with host Debbie Dujanovic, Cheryl Worsley, and Becky Bruce. Welcome. Today I'm joined by a special agent whom we are not going to reveal his identity, and that's because we are talking about SWAT today. And he actively works cases, and we would not want to do anything to endanger him. So thank you for joining us today. You do train active shooters, and that's our topic today is active shooter situations. So you train the other agents on active shooters. Yeah, how to respond to active shooters. So what goes into that training? So there's uh, quite a bit that goes into it. We have the FBI has supported uh, a group called ALERT which is down in San Marcos, Texas, stands for Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training. And uh, they put on a week-long course called Train the Trainers. And um, in that course, they're teaching law enforcement officers how to respond to active shooter situations. Um, They have a lot of actual live scenarios and, and live role players. And they go through a number of scenarios. So you're training not just special agents with the FBI. You're training police and all kinds of law enforcement. Is that right? Correct. Correct. We'll train um, law enforcement to train other law enforcement. We'll train special agents to train other law enforcement as well. So we've just had this shooting in Parkland, Florida. It's just been a, a couple of weeks ago. And what is it that you tell people? Yeah, so for the civilian uh, response, what we advocate is run, hide, fight. And that's something the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, um, all the federal agencies are on board with that response. And it's pretty self-explanatory. If you are able to run and get out of the building, you want to do that. You want to get away from the situation. If you're unable to safely flee or or run away from uh, the active shooter, then you want to try to hide or barricade yourself. Finally, uh, the last case is if if the active shooter finds you, you want to fight. You want to fight back and, and try to disarm the, the active shooter. As you're running, if you see someone injured as a civilian, should you try to get them out? Yes, absolutely. If you are able to safely get them out, you should try to do that. If um, it's going to put your, you in jeopardy, and you're both going to get shot, then we advocate that that you try to get yourself out. I know this because I took the the FBI's Citizens Academy training, but uh, you might see, um, if you're in an active shooter situation and you're running out, you might see SWAT members running in and not helping injured. Can you explain to me why? Yeah, so that that is difficult to do um, even in training, right? We'll train that scenario where um, we have SWAT officers responding to an active shooter event. As they enter a building, we'll have uh, people um, mocked up so they look like they've been injured and crying out to the SWAT operators. Um, We need to eliminate the threat first and stop the killing, and then we can go back and assist those who are injured. So if if you can't get out... You're supposed to hide. What goes into that? You know, you can hide. Depends on what sort of building you're in, environment you're in. If you are in a a classroom, uh, hopefully you can lock the door. Um, you can barricade that door with with chairs, with desks, anything that that might be available. 
and just try to make it as difficult as possible for that uh, active shooter to, to find you. What about cell phones? Uh, can they be a hindrance or help? T- talk about that for a minute. Yeah, sure. So they, they could reveal your location. Um, a lot of the times, these active shooter events, they don't go on too long. I think the average is about five minutes. Most of them are over in five minutes, right? But once the active shooting stop, starts, um, a lot of people will call 911. They'll call their family and friends. And so pretty soon, all the phones start ringing. You can imagine the, the students in the Parkland High School. Um, as soon as that word went out that there was an active shooter event at that school, I'm sure many cell phones were going off or ringing and that sort of thing. So you can silence your cell phone, um, and that way that won't reveal your location. But um, on the positive side, a cell phone can be very helpful for uh, responding officers and law enforcement. You can tell us where the shooter is, if he's in the cafeteria, how many shooters there are. All that information is very helpful. Should that be done on social? How should that be done? Well, that's a good question. I think um, if you can call 911, that's a good way to do it. Often 911 gets overloaded, but that's the system set set up and, and put in place to pass information to law enforcement. Okay. But if not, or if 911 is overloaded... Is it all right to go on Twitter and, and talk about what's happening? I think so. You think so? That's yeah. that's okay, even yeah. though Shooter may be monitoring Twitter, possibly. True, true. Yeah, so you have to be careful about that. I wouldn't put, hey, we're hiding in, you know, classroom 234. Right. I wouldn't put that out on social media. You mentioned uh, SWAT goes right in. That changed after Columbine. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, so um, I, I mentioned SWAT because I run the SWAT team. Um, law enforcement prior to Columbine um, and at Columbine, law enforcement officers would wait for SWAT to arrive. Well, typically SWAT's going to be 20, 30, 40 minutes behind. And like I mentioned, most of these incidents are over within five minutes. So what um, alert is advocating now what the FBI is is putting forward now is um, officers have to respond immediately at Columbine that was not the protocol patrol officers responded and they waited they waited for SWAT to arrive um, it was it was over I think it took 40 minutes for the SWAT team to arrive in Columbine by that point the shooters had killed themselves and all the killing was done by that point so now <clears throat> We're advocating and really encouraging those officers. Even if it's just one officer that shows up, he's got to go. He's got to go in. He or she has to go in and respond and try to stop that killing. That's likely why the deputy at Parkland who who didn't go in is is under severe scrutiny right now because the protocol has indeed changed since then. Correct, correct. And I feel for that guy. I mean, you know, it's it's very difficult. Um, I I was reading some of the statistics before coming in today. And if one officer responds to and the, and is engaged or rather engages the shooter, um, a third of those officers are shot. So that's that's a that's a huge risk that those guys are taking. You know, you got to do it. You got to go in and, and stop that killing because innocent people are getting getting killed, but they are taking a huge risk. And, that, and I think it's important that the public recognizes that. That's a huge risk. That's I mean, I guess that's what. 
they sign up for every day, though. So Correct. Yeah. Do you feel that teachers and students need to train f- with Run, Hide, Fight? Yeah, I think so. I mean, most importantly, the, the school district and the schools should have a plan in place and know what their protocol is going to be, what are they going to do, and they need to practice that because you, you can have the best plan in place, but if you don't practice it, it's not going to happen when the, when the shooting starts. So very important to rehearse those plans and practice those plans. And again, we're, we're advocating for the run-hide fight. We talked a little bit about run. We talked a little bit about hide. What about fight? Fight is uh, probably the most intimidating one of those three, but what, what, do, you, what do you do? So it's, when you have uh, multiple uh, civilians attacking an active shooter, they're going to take them down. Somebody might get shot in that process, but they're going to they're gonna win if they're aggressive and, and they're working together. If, if it's just one, one uh, unarmed civilian against the active shooter, well, you might lose that battle. But if guys and girls gang up on that active shooter, they're going to win that battle and they can, they can overtake them. Gang up how? You can use um, any weapons that might be lying around. Chairs are a good thing to throw at somebody. Uh, fire extinguishers can knock somebody out pretty easily. Just even um, standing behind the door when they open it, slamming the door shut on them, could potentially knock the weapon out of their hands. So there's a number of things that you can do to so fight back. I'm looking at this room. There's a couple of file cabinets that I could, I could put in front of the door I don't see anything but chairs that I might use as weapons maybe one of those speakers if I could get it down is this something that you need to go through in your head ahead of time or do you just use what's around you in the moment it's good to to be thoughtful about it and proactive so prior to something like this occurring go through those scenarios and you're going to respond much better we talked a little bit uh, about w- what to do when you get in those situations. Let's let's talk now about what you do as a SWAT team member. And could you tell me a case where you had uh, a close call? Yeah, sure. So with SWAT, we, we're in a much better position than um, the average patrol officer out there. He's pulling over. Again, he or she is pulling over a car. They don't know what they're getting into. They don't know who's in that car. They don't know if they're wanted. If um, if they get arrested, and they're going to to jail for life. That officer doesn't know that, so they're they're in a very dangerous uh, position, and they're reacting. With the SWAT team and the FBI in particular, our investigations are long term. Typically, we know everything about the subject that we're going to go and arrest. So we pick the time and the place to arrest that individual. And a lot of thought goes into that, trying to determine what's going to be the safest way to do that. We try to avoid car car stops and car chases. So a lot of time we'll go to their house, and sometimes we'll we'll know that there are kids in the house, so we have to adjust our tactics for that. One particular case, I think it was up in Missoula, Montana, we had our main subject was on the main floor of the residence. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, there was a, a basement to this as well. It was uh, a basement apartment. That person was unassociated with uh, the individual that we were arresting. 
we surround the house, and, and now the SWAT tactics have changed quite a bit in the past five years. Rather than rush in and rush through the house and look for the subject, we will breach a door and we'll call the person to us. So we were doing that, and, and in the midst of, of doing all that, the uh, individual in the downstairs apartment came out um, into the living room, and we had some windows, daylight windows that we were looking through. The person came out with a cell phone in their hand, but it was, it was not well lit. So it was hard to tell what he had in his hand, and we were giving commands to this individual. They weren't responding. So they were, they were noncompliant. They had something in their hand. And it, so it was a little bit tense situation, but the, the fact that we were outside the house looking through the window provided us a little bit of protection. The fact that we knew this person was not supposed to be associated with the main subjects upstairs, um, all of that kind of helped us to be patient and continue issuing commands. Eventually, the, we realized it was a cell phone in, in his So he didn't get hand. shot. So he didn't get shot, right? Wow. So careful planning, having the ability to pick the time and place of choosing and doing it uh, in a safe location really helps to, to keep everybody safe. Is that why the protocol changed from breaking down the door and rushing in? Uh, t- so t- talk about that. Why did it change? Yeah, yeah, that was... Um, that's part of the reason it changed. Um, so you, we'll knock and announce, and then if they don't come to the door, we knock the door down, we run into the house. This, is the, this was the uh, previous um, standard, and we'd run into the house and try to find that subject before they could get to a gun. That was a, that was a thought, right? right? Well, it takes a long time to knock and announce, wait a reasonable amount of time for them to answer the door, Probably they know you're there since you've knocked and announced. Right. That's the intent anyway. So now you're running into the house. If they wanted to get a gun, they probably had time to get a gun. And and so we would see shootings on occasion because of that. Now we'll wait outside, knock and announce. If they don't come to the door, we breach the door. We're continuing to call and, and, and call them out. And most of them will comply. They realize, you know what, I, there's nowhere I can run. So typically they come out. You breach the door. That gives you opportunity to do uh, deploy other tactics Correct. like uh, tear gas or smoke. Correct. And we have a little robot that we'll send in, and the robot has a camera on it. So we can run that in and, and then um, see, okay, maybe the subject's in the back bedroom. So now when we know he's in the back bedroom, we can call out to him and say, hey, we see you. It's harder for a subject to ignore you when you know exactly where he is. Mm-hmm. And all of that to try to decrease the likelihood of injury or or casualty to both the SWAT officers and to the people who might be in the building. Correct. Absolutely. Have you ever had a a situation where (laughs) there were kids involved and that threw you off? We've had pretty good intelligence on... So I've been here in Salt Lake for about two and a half years, and I think in that time we've done probably about 30 SWAT ops, and we've had pretty good intelligence on those. Uh, maybe a quarter of them, there are kids in the house, and sometimes we know that they're in this, this bedroom in the back corner. Um, other times we don't know where in the house they are. I have had the occasion, I'm not here in Salt Lake, but other places where 
we we didn't know there were kids in the house and we we breached the front door and the kids were right there in the in the living room and that can be very dangerous cuz a lot of time we'll throw a flashbang um which is a diversionary device one of our tactics is before you throw that flashbang you look to see where you're throwing it where it's going to land mm-hmm. and so in that case we breach the front door they look they see the kids they don't throw the flashbang fortunately because that can be very dangerous as right. you can so, imagine so you you adapt in in those situations what what do you do after you know there are uh, innocents inside yeah then that becomes all right well do we get them out first or do we hold them where they are and get the main subject out first? Just recently in Helena, we had that situation, and there are two kids, six and three, in one bedroom. Um, we just held them in that bedroom while we got the main subject out, and then we dealt with them. Okay, so and, you you try to get the innocence out, so the kids or you know a, a spouse or somebody who may not be connected, you you try to get them out. Correct. What if the suspect is holding them hostage? Yeah, so that complicates things dramatically, and that the the risk level uh, escalates substantially when it's a hostage situation. And in 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 that instance, if we know that somebody you know might be prone to taking their girlfriend hostage, then rather than give them a ton of time to think about that and and hold outside. Then we might go back, revert to the older tactics where you run in, get in there, and get between the main subject and the potential hostage. So the protocol will change based on the situation? Correct. Absolutely. How often do you train? So we train uh, four days a month, and most of the the agents on the SWAT team are um, case agents first. So they're working violent crime, they're working white-collar crime, public corruption, cyber, you know, a, a myriad of different, all the violations that the FBI works. They're doing that full-time, more or less, and then SWAT is an auxiliary duty. So I think you mentioned you did 30 cases in about two years. Is that is about 15, 20, about an average year for you? Yep, it seems to be about average, yeah. And are these all federal cases, or are you involved sometimes in local law enforcement cases? So all those were federal cases. We do assist locals if they, um, if they need our assistance. So here in Salt Lake, we have a, an armored vehicle. Not all the police departments do. So on, on occasion, we will uh, bring that vehicle to one of their SWAT operations and assist them with that. The, the larger municipalities... Their their SWAT teams are very capable. In some of the smaller communities, they have smaller SWAT teams or they don't have a SWAT team. So in that case, if uh, the FBI is working a case jointly with the, the locals, a lot of time our SWAT team will go and assist. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can sure. you talk about your most memorable case? And I'm hoping that you can. <laughs> if so, why was it the most memorable sure. case? Sure. Uh, yeah, so one um, highlight of my career so far really has been a hostage rescue that we did down in Dothan, Alabama. And in this case, there was um, an elderly man. Well, I say elderly. He was um, 65, I think. And he had dug a bunker on his property, and he took a six-year-old kid and took them hostage and held them down in that bunker 
for about uh, a week, and he was holding that kid. He wanted to get a reporter down there and talk about his what he saw as all the injustice in the world. Um, eventually, on the sixth day, the situation was kind of unraveling. We felt he was going to kill the kid, and so we uh, launched a rescue attempt. And it was extremely um, difficult, and he ended up shooting um, up out of the hole as we were trying to make entry, and it was um, it was pretty traumatic. But ultimately, we saved um, the kid, and the main subject was killed in the process, and, and none of the operators were hurt. So that was just a that was a, a phenomenal experience. So you felt I'm assuming that was very rewarding to see that positive outcome on something that could have gone so badly. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. So you have, I assume, specialists on SWAT. So you have uh, a sniper, probably. You have uh, those who are versed in explosives, both for uh, disarming and for... um, for flashbangs and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the, the training that has to go into that? Is that also four days a month, or is there is it more specific than that? Sure. So you're correct. We've got a, a couple or a number of snipers. Um, they have to do additional training to become snipers and then sustainment training as well. And um, they're really good um, on rural ops in particular. Urban ops, we don't use them quite as much. But they're also what we call operators. So if it's not a sniper-specific mission, then they're rolling right into the uh, stack and making entry with the rest of the guys. FBI also has special agent bomb techs. They've had that program for a long time. Um, They work very closely with the state and local authorities and bomb techs. And recently they've got a a pretty neat program that they're pushing out, and it's called the Tactical bomb tech program. And the intent or the purpose of the tactical bomb techs is during these active shooter situations, we're seeing more cases of IEDs, um, explosive devices, and potentially hostages that are holding an explosive device or sitting on an explosive device. And so we need to have... uh, a bomb tech integrated with the SWAT team that can deal with those situations. So bomb techs in the FBI can elect to go to additional training, and it's it's quite a bit of additional training that they go to and they get more equipment, specialized equipment to deal with IEDs, and they learn how to deal with that stuff. And it's pretty fascinating to watch because they do a, a great job in a, in a really high-stress I ma- situation. I imagine there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah. You mentioned a second ago, ago a positive outcome, and, and we know that not all of the outcomes are positive. And, you know, these are these are real people who are working SWAT and are dealing with high-stress uh, outcomes that aren't always good. So <clears throat> how do you take care of yourself? How do SWAT members deal with some of that negativity? Yeah, I think there is probably a lot of stress that goes into um, the job, and I'm the only full-time guy, so it's a little bit easier for me. The guys on the team um, that are working cases, it can be very difficult to be gone for a SWAT op, and we have a huge division, so they might be driving 12 hours. You get up bright and early in the morning, 
you do your SWAT operation, hopefully everything goes well, and then they're driving back another, back home another 10 hours. They get back, get up in the, the next morning, they got uh, casework that has fallen behind that they got to catch up on. Mm-hmm. So it can be very difficult and very stressful, and they need the support of their supervisors to, you know, and, and for the most part, the FBI is pretty good about um, realizing these guys are, are really wearing two hats and, and carrying a lot, carrying a, a big load. But the camaraderie helps, and every now and then we will do some training, um, you know, hike Angels Landing at Mount Zion, something like that, and kind of some fun training. Team building. Exactly. <laughs> With the SWAT team. <laughs> <laughs> if you had uh, one or two things that you would like the general public to know about the men and women, I'm presuming, who work SWAT, what would you want people to know about you? I think that um, it's important for them to know we're trying to do this job as safely as possible. And like I say, a tremendous amount of work goes into planning these ops, figuring out the, the best time to do it, best way to do it, and and we're trying to make a positive difference in their community. Um, sometimes we see, see that uh, feedback from neighborhoods. Other times we don't. Some neighborhoods are very uh, happy to see us. They're like, "Yes, I'm. We're so glad you came in and, and finally arrested this this person. We've he's been causing problems, you know, for months, whatever." Um, but it is important uh, that the, the public understand we are trying to do it as safely as possible, and and these guys work very hard to be at a skill level that enables them to do that safely. Do you sense a, a backlash among some communities uh, with regards to concerns over police brutality? Is that is that rubbing off? That does worry me a little bit. A lot of the, There's two sides to every story, and a lot of the time, because somebody that might have been involved in a, in a shooting, the police, they are under investigation. So the police department is, can't re, really reveal their side of the story because it's under investigation, because they're going to go to trial, that sort of thing. And so a lot of the time the police officer um, is denigrated in the media or on social media because that's the only side of the story that's out there. Now, I'm not saying all the the police shootings are are justified. You know, on occasion there are mistakes made, grave mistakes made that that need to be uh, dealt with. Okay. All right. You live in this community, you're part of this community, and so are the other members of SWAT. So um, looking to do what's good for the community. Absolutely. All right. Doing our best. Anything you would like to add? No, I, I think that's about it. All right. Well, thank you for joining me, Special Excellent. Agent.